Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. All right, please open your Bibles to Malachi 4, and we're going to finish the book of Malachi together. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way through to the end, verse 6. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you can follow along with me on the screens if you can throw up verse 1 now. Thanks, guys. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You guys ready to do this? Seem more awake this week than last week? Uh, how many of you were in Boy Scouts growing up? Anybody? I was in Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. Believe that? Doesn't sound right, right? Uh, and one of the adventures inflicted on me as a Boy Scout was backpacking. Anybody ever been backpacking? Way too much joy associated with backpacking. You take a pack and you fill it with things and then you put that pack on your back. And then you walk out into the wilderness at like 11 years old for me. And then you just like live out there for like three days. So because I was young, we were in a Boy Scout troop, mainly of, of really young kids. The, like the leader, like the, the troop leader, he was like, we need to have like a test uh, weekend. Before we actually go backpacking, I want you guys to like pack your, your backpack and, and show up to our meeting so I can inspect it and figure out whether or not you understand like what you need to put in your backpack. And so everyone's kind of freaking out. They're figuring out, like, okay, what's like the lightest material? What kind of food do I have? And, and on the one hand, there's the guy who shows up who's got like the thinnest like possible windbreaker. He's got like space food that like is negative weight. It makes him like lighter as he walks. And then there's this poor guy, we'll call him Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy had like canned food and like heavy clothing. And remember, we're like 11, and I don't know how much an 11-year-old weighs, but his backpack was like 70 pounds. And the troop leader's like, hey, this is not going to work for you. You're not going to be able to make it. And the point is this. That exercise, that exercise designed for us to prepare for that particular event was so that as we went on our journey, we would survive the journey, we would thrive, and we would be well-suited to the destination that we were going to. We're now at the final portion of the Old Testament. We worked through the book of Malachi, and I'm a big context guy. I like context. Historically, it's about the Jews who have returned from exile in in a a pagan land, 
And although their temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt. And although uh, their, their city was destroyed, the walls were rebuilt. And some of the priestly administrations were put back in place. So in some sense, the people who are living back in the land of Israel are happy because they have something. Some things have been restored to them that they lost. But they're not where they were back in the time of King David. They're not as famous as they were. They're not as powerful as they were. They're not as wealthy as they were. They were probably less than 20,000 people living in the land. And that, that bred dissatisfaction with their situation. Even though God had restored them to a certain degree, they weren't happy enough. They were dissatisfied, and that dissatisfaction led to indifference. And that indifference, as we see in the book of Malachi, led to disobedience. Over and over and over again in this book, God says to his people, you have, and he tells them in a way that they've sinned. And they say to God, us? No. And then God, who is like the creator of the universe, he's omniscient, knows all things, is perfect, and, and, uh, and has always existed and will always exist, proves to them that, yes, they actually have disobeyed him in the way that he says. And so it's a book. It's a harsh book with lots of really harsh words for people uh, that belong to God. But on the front and back end of this book, we receive really powerful affirmations of God's goodness. What's the first thing, for those of you who remember, that God says to his people in the book of Malachi? It's correct. I have loved you. And the way that this is phrased, like the, the way that the verb is used, it's like, I have always loved you and I still love you. That hasn't changed about me. And at the end of the book, although there are intense warnings with language that is intense, it also is an affirmation of God's goodness. It's about the perfect future that he will bring into place. So I did like some, some historical context and some literary context, but there's one more like type of context that's helpful for us. It's what we call like, like canonical or redemptive history context. This is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last book. What, what is the next book in your Bible? Like literally, yeah, Matthew. My, my, look, Malachi ends, and next page, New Testament. Is that what it is in your Bible? You guys have anything in between? Good. If you've got books in between, please come speak to me. So um, between Malachi and the book of Matthew, there's hundreds of years. And historical things that are interesting and important and, and that do matter happen in those hundreds of years. But in the special revelatory sense in which God speaks and is recorded as scripture, God is silent for 400 years. He doesn't say things in the way that we read them in Malachi and the way that we read them in Matthew. And the person to arrive on the scene after that 400 years is who? <laughs> the person to arrive on the scene in the book of Matthew is who? Jesus. Jesus arrives. Jesus is God himself, Yahweh returned to his people to deliver them. It's this new movement in redemptive history. Jesus answers the questions left unanswered in Malachi and quite a bit of the other prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And we are in the distinct privileged position of when we read Malachi, knowing that Jesus has already come, he's already died, he's already risen, he's already ascended to the, uh, to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus will come back. So there's a sense in which we can understand more about Malachi's words because some of the promises God makes, he fulfills in Jesus. Not all of them, but many of them. And we can also stand alongside the Israelites as we read the book of Malachi because both they and we are waiting. 
This final section of Malachi, these last few words, these last six verses, although they are intense and in some senses encouraging, we get a lot going on in these verses, they are designed to teach the people of Israel as they await on their Messiah to wait well. Words that they might survive the journey, thrive, and be well-suited for the destination to which they are headed. So in this passage, we get that. We get some good words for us as we seek to wait well, well, knowing, knowing that Jesus has already come and also that he will come again. So the first is this, uh, trust in justice. Trust in justice. Uh, uh, read verse one with me. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Your grandma probably didn't embroider this verse on a pillow, like in her house. It is really drastic language. It's really evocative language. The, the language he's using, uh, the prophet of the Lord, is probably referring to like these dome-shaped ovens uh, that they would have used that would have gotten so hot uh, because they were designed to melt metal. They were designed to, to fashion metal objects. And, and the things being thrown into these ovens are like twigs and, and branches that would be burnt up Immediately, the language is utter destruction. Nothing is left. The judgment of the Lord goes out against the wicked and the evildoers and the arrogant, and it utterly consumes them. And we read that, and I'm guessing that almost everyone here is made uncomfortable to one degree or another by that. I think we're made uncomfortable for the wrong reason, though. Um, most of us read that, and we're uncomfortable because we read about the wicked being destroyed and we're sort of afraid that maybe God would get it wrong and justice wouldn't actually be done. That those people might not actually like deserve it or something like that. I think that's actually the wrong way to think about this passage. Um, I want to try and give you an example. Uh, there's a recent picture I saw online um, of a woman in, in Florida who a while back uh, was driving drunk. Um, and as she was driving drunk, she dropped her phone and she got into a car wreck and she killed someone. She killed another 60-year-old woman. Now, it's tragic when people drive drunk and, uh, and they kill someone or die because they were driving drunk. Someone told me this morning, like, I was like, I don't know how often that happens. It's like every single day in America, someone drives drunk and kills someone else. So in one sense, it's not notable. It's tragic, but it's not notable. What was notable about this particular instance is her mugshot, she's wearing like, sort of like this prison uniform, is her smiling like she's posing for like a wedding photo. And like the stark, I don't know, comparison of the atrocity that she committed, the evil thing that she did with her smiling face inspires in essentially everybody a sense of frustration, indignation, and the desire for justice to be done. Are you all still with me? Okay. There's another picture of her from many weeks later when she's at her sentencing. She's wearing the same prison uniform and she's crying. And every single news outlet that I read, regardless of how liberal or conservative they were, all had headlines like, not smiling now, she killed somebody, she was smiling, now she's crying because justice is going to be done. Here's the thing. Just for a moment, I want you to enter in to the best way you can, like the emotions of her, the woman who killed that person because she was drunk driving. She's crying. She says to the family, if I could switch places with her, I would switch places with her. 
She's looking down the barrel of a difficult prison sentence. She knows that her reputation is ruined. She's in a dark place, and her guilt and her fear and her pain and her sadness are all real. Should justice still be done? Yeah, I don't think anyone would look at that situation and say, ah, you know what, let's, let's not do justice here. The problem is not... The problem is not that we want to override or overlook or not execute judgment or justice against those who deserve it. The problem is we're actually concerned whether or not justice will be done correctly. How many of you here this morning care in one sense or another about justice? We all do. We all have different definitions (laughs) of what justice is to the point that it's almost hard to say justice anymore. We have different definitions of what justice is. But here's the thing. When we think about God as one who enacts justice against evildoers, against the arrogant, against those who are proud and don't call on his name, who have rebelled against him and done evil things, we have to be certain as believers in the Bible, because the Bible unanimously says this, that God will get justice right. The problem we have today is we disagree on what justice is. We're not always sure. We're concerned because our brains and our knowledge of situations are limited, but that's not true for God. He knows the hidden content of every heart. He knows the beginning from the end. He is all-powerful, and his justice will be perfect. Two things about this. When you read this, it should still make you uncomfortable, not because you're worried that God won't get it right, It should make your heart ask this question, have I humbled myself before God or do I remain arrogant? That's how this passage should make you uncomfortable. Secondly, as an outflow of what we know about God and justice, we have the distinct ability to live in an unjust world. Is the world always just? Is the world always just? No. No, right? Bad things happen, evil goes unpunished, good goes unrewarded. And again, we might disagree on what is or isn't just, but we all have a sense that the world is right now not 100% okay, that the books are not completely equaled out, that justice is not always done. Christians are able to live in injustice because we know that God will bring about perfect justice in the end. We know that he will get it right. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean you shouldn't care about justice now. I do mean it shouldn't consume you such that you're worried God won't get it right in the end. He will. We can trust in God's justice. Amen? We can hope in righteousness. Read verse 2a with me. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. We uh, have the prophet, uh, the, the Lord actually, through his prophet, uh, use the metaphor of a sun, a sun rising. Uh, what happens when the sun rises? Gets light. Someone say it becomes day. Technically, that's true. It becomes day, yes. It brings warmth, right? Is that right? Okay. Uh, the sun does all kinds of things. And uh, I think all those metaphors matter for this passage, but the one that strikes me as the most important is that it is the son of what? Righteousness. The son of righteousness that brings healing in its wings. And the question we have to ask is, what kind of righteousness is the Lord talking about here? Uh, it's important. Uh, the kind of righteousness that is spoken about here is one that is external to his people, but given to his people. 
in theology, we use the term imputed righteousness. Righteousness that is not ours, but is given to us. Not from our own efforts or achievement or skill or strength or intelligence, but righteousness that is given to us. When the sun rises, it sheds light on people. Is that right? Does the light come from the people? No, it comes from the sun. How many of you have walked from a bright room into a dark room and you have to stand there like a dummy while your eyes catch up to what you want to go and do? I tried to explain the science of it last night, totally failed, but you know what I'm talking about, right? And the darker the room is and the brighter place you came from, the more your eyes have to adjust because there's still a little bit of light in that room. Um, one time I was on a cave tour. Uh, anybody ever been on a cave tour? Ah, so I went on a cave tour and like we were going further and further down into the cave and eventually we got to almost nearly like the very bottom of the cave and the tour guide said this thing that I will never forget. He said, uh, no matter how long you're down here, your eyes will not adjust. If we turn off all the lights, there's no light that gets in here. It's so deep, so far away from the entrance that your eyes will not adjust because there is no light for them to adjust to. Are you with me? So the righteousness you have is not like you walking into a room and the little bit of light that's there suddenly is something that you can work with. It's the sun of righteousness breaking through complete and utter shadow and the blackness and the veil of sin and wickedness. It's righteousness given to you. Given to you. The righteousness we have is given to us. We don't make it. We don't earn it. We don't achieve it. God gives it to us. Look at... Um, what we read in Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made what? Righteous. Righteous. We read in that passage about how the first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned and so sin and death entered into the world and all their descendants became disobedient but also through one man his name is what Jesus all those who might call on his name will be made righteous there's a famous uh, theologian who's passed away now named John Stott and he says um, he referring to Jesus has no sin but mine and I have no righteousness but his we're able to rest in the righteousness that God has given us. We're able to hope in the righteousness that God has given us because if he's given it to us and he is a good God that does not change and is faithful, it cannot be taken away from us. The imagery of light is really powerful. It's one that's used all over the Bible. Uh, the opening of John talks about Jesus this way. I always like to think like Matthew, you know how Matthew opens his gospel with like a list that looks like it's for tax purposes or something? Like this guy's the son of this guy, the son of this guy, the son of this guy. It's almost as if read or John read Matthew's intro and he's like, this is not dramatic enough. He's like, I'm gonna start in outer space. <laughs> in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus arrives on the scene as a son of righteousness who is able to give righteousness to God's people, people who are enemies of God, who are sinners, who are unable to be righteous on their own. Jesus is able to give people righteousness. And that's a righteousness you can hope in because it cannot be taken away. We can hope 
in righteousness. We can persist in joy. We can persist in joy. Let's read 2b and 3. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Two, two images used here um, to describe how we, as God's people, can persist in joy. Uh, one is calves being released from the stall, and the other is ashes under their feet. Um, I'm going to be honest, I don't know a lot about animals. I've been to like a farm once or twice, um, but someone last night showed me videos of calves like, who are released from a stall after a long period of time being in it. Have you ever seen anything like that? They lose their minds. <laughs> they're super excited. They're jumping around. They're excited to see grass. Um, so in one sense, uh, the prophet or, or the Lord through his prophet is, is evoking the idea of joy after a long time without the experience of joy. And the other metaphor is ashes. Um, it's important that the Lord says that he acts. It's not God's people that destroy the enemies of God. It's God himself. And the ashes are under the feet of his people, meaning the work is done. That there's no danger. There's no predators. There's no one there to do them harm. Uh, an unadulterated joy. I want you to notice that what God is talking about, what he is saying to his people, the reality he is describing is not given to them now. It's given to them later. Still with me? How many of you, 100% of the time, without any gaps, are joyful? <laughs> and we'll see you guys the question. How many of you experienced joy in the last week? <laughs> um, when my daughter was young, we were at a birthday party, like a, a birthday party, like not for kids. We were eating at a restaurant, and she's being awful. Just awful. I love my daughter. Bad day. You guys know what I'm talking about? just could not, someone said amen, <laughs> just could not keep it together. And so I'm like, I'm going to take her home. So I'm like, say to my daughter, you're in trouble. You need to calm down or you're going to be in more trouble as I'm getting her into her car seat, which if you have kids, you know, car seats are the worst thing. <laughs> and as she's like tripping, I'm like, hey, uh, you need to calm down. You're going to be in trouble if you don't calm down. And she looks at me and she says, when I get home, can I have a show and a snack? Like a, people, like a lot of people kind of vibing with that right now. They're like, I get it. And I'm like, yeah, you can have a show and a snack when we get home. And she's like, oh, good, that'll make me feel better. <laughs> so here's what she's doing. She's reaching into the future. She's grabbing some joy, and she's pulling it into the present. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, joy is powerful. Joy is amazing. Joy is magnificent. Why? Because it travels through time. Future joy is something you can have access to right now. So how many of you have awaited uh, reuniting or seeing someone you love after being away from them for a long time? Anybody ever had that experience? And you're excited about seeing them, but knowing that you will see them, imagining your time with them brings you joy now. So I'm actually like, do you have joy? I want to be honest with you. I'm not a particularly joyful person. I would like to be. <laughs> but I'm not. My, my default, my tendency is to be like a cynic and a skeptic and kind of assume that the worst is going to happen. I'm a risk-averse guy. I don't like, uh, like allowing myself to be too affected by what might be joyful in the future. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, it's important for us to understand what it is that brings us joy because uh, that's, that's powerful. Uh, 
if our joy, just bear with me, if our joy is rooted in the person of Jesus, who paid the debt for our sins, who died in our place, who was raised on the third day, who will bring about a perfect kingdom in which all sin and wickedness and death are gone, that's righteous and peaceful and merciful. He will truly bring a good future in which we will be able to, in an unmitigated way, worship him. If that is our joy, it cannot be stolen from us. Your joy can be stolen if it's rooted in anything else. So when I ask the question, are you joyful? And the answer is no. Then you should ask, what is it that I want more than Jesus? Does, do you understand that? Does it make sense? So we're given these resources, just trust in justice, hope in righteousness, persist in joy, uh, delight in the word. Delight in the word. Uh, let's read verse four real quickly. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. You guys remember Moses? I feel like that should have been a more assertive answer. Moses, he's like the man in the Old Testament. Really, God is the hero of the Old Testament, but if there's like a secondary hero, it's Moses. You guys remember Moses? He's right, he's on the desert, right? He, he sees the, the, the bush on fire, he goes back to Egypt, there's some plagues, right? Parts the sea, walks through, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. He goes to Sinai or Horeb, and at the mountain, he is given what? The Ten Commandments, the law. The answer is yes. The Ten Commandments as a subset of the entirety of the law. God is saying to his people, as they wait, as they wait for him, he is saying to them, return to the words that I have already said to you. When I cook mac and cheese for my kids, I pour the noodles in the boiling water, I throw the cheese packet somewhere on the counter, and then I throw the box in the trash. And then I'm like, how long do they boil for? <laughs> and like a, like a dumb idiot, I gotta walk back, open the trash up, dig back through it, and be like, oh yeah, eight minutes. And then I'm like, done. And then I'm like, wait, what goes with the cheese? I gotta walk back like a dumb idiot to the trash can, pull it out, look at the box. Like, okay, so it's butter and it's milk. And I throw it back in. I'm like, oh, how much? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, God says, return to the word that I've already given to you. The statutes, the rules, the law itself. For us, that's the entirety of the Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say a few things real quickly. Um, don't be offended by this, but a lot of us have like specialized Bibles. You don't need to raise your hand, right? We've got like the teen study Bible. We've got like the fireman's Bible. We've got like the Air Force Bible. And I like to like make fun of people like, oh, they're just tricked by consumerism. All the Bibles are the same, just the cover's different. And then I see the pastor's Bible. <laughs> what is it? It's the same as your Bible. <laughs> just duped, just duped like everyone else. We got nice Bible covers with pin slots and ruler slots and like a compass and I don't know, like a place for a... And my fear is this, um, there are some of you who are faithful readers of your Bibles, um, but there's some of us here who have nice Bible covers, who have a specialized Bible, and only open it on the weekend. It's a weekend Bible. 
I want to just tell you like a story. I, uh, many years ago, wrote a really long paper on the Gospel of Mark. It took me many years. And uh, for that paper, I had to read all kinds of books about the Gospel of Mark. I had to read uh, what are called monographs, like single studies. I had to read chapters and other books. I had to read articles. And you just kind of begin to drown in all these books about the Gospel of Mark. And like I would find like an article that I would need at this library. I would call the library. The librarian would photocopy it and send it to me, and it would be in German. Praise God for Google Translate. <laughs> and you're going to drown in all these things about this particular book of the Bible. And one day I encounter another student who's been there a little bit longer than me, and he's like, Andrew, uh, you should just like read the Gospel of Mark. Huh. You, th- you think that's a good idea? He's like, yeah. Yeah, you can read the other books too, but you should read the Gospel of Mark. Because you're writing on the Gospel of Mark, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you should probably read it. And so I like make this commitment. I'm going to read it twice a week for the rest of the time I'm writing this paper. There's been no time in my life, no time in my life when I have more powerfully seen how the Word of God shapes hearts. I'm not saying those other books were bad to read. I'm saying the Bible is different. That it gives me life, that it shapes me, that it transforms me. It enables me to lead a more faithful Christian life. It's powerful. It does something to us. When we read the Bible, it is not like other sources of information. I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you something that keeps me up at night. Hope Chapel, that keeps me up at night. Here's what keeps me up at night. We have lots of sources of information right now. Is that true? Different news outlets, different different forms of entertainment, different websites, different newspapers, and there's all these different media worlds that we can live in. And we do not just submit our minds to them, we subject our hearts to them. It, it, It keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night that each of us have our own chosen world of information that does not just inform us, it transforms us. That it shapes our identity. It enlivens our greatest fears. It ignites our fiercest angers. I, I know, I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not innocent of this. I go on Twitter, and I see something that makes me angry, and I'm like, more. I think we're here together this weekend, and you're going to be here for, you know, just like another 60 minutes or whatever. <laughs> and then we just have talking heads in our ears all day long. We have handed our hearts over to them. We've allowed them to shape our identity. We allow worlds of information, and we all live in different worlds of information, we have allowed them to disciple us to worship things that are not worthy of our worship. Who is worthy? Only Jesus. We all have altars. I'm not not innocent, just to be clear. Altars in our house tear down the altar. I see Facebook. I know Zach doesn't see Facebook, but I will tell on you. 
I literally, I'm, I'm awake at night thinking about this. I know I should trust God more, but I'm awake at night. I'm awake at how the church bound by the power of the Holy Spirit could be pulled apart by fleeting media outlets. May it not be, Lord, have mercy on us. We should be informed by the world around us. We should not be transformed by it. I want to show you in the Psalms a picture of someone whose heart is transformed by the word of God. My prayer is that this is what we look like at our church. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. How many of you are in mini church? If you're not in mini church, you can come to my mini church. It's really intense. I'm going to give you an assignment for mini church, okay? Is that okay? Um, I want you at mini church, I want you to prepare, by the way, prepare for this midweek mini church. Prepare, pray, and ask God to reveal to you the worlds of information that have begun to transform you to which you have altars build up. The things that have taken your heart and bent them away from the Lord. You still with me? And I want you to confess them at many church. Now, let me give you some guidelines so we don't have fist fights at all the many churches this week. You still with me? Your job is not to talk about other news sources that you don't like as fraudulent or a bunch of lies or unhelpful or evil. Not to try to evangelize someone to your preferred media source. It is simply to confess and to pray and return to the word of God. You guys with me? No fist fights, okay? Trust in justice, hope in righteousness, persist in joy, delight in the word, rest in God's mercy. Rest in God's mercy. Uh, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We remember Elijah as well, hopefully. Yeah? Elijah is the one who called down the pillar of fire to burn up the altar of the Lord before the prophets of Baal. He does all kinds of other things, but one of the things that Elijah does is he prophetically speaks to prepare God's people, to purify God's people, to identify a remnant before the coming judgment of the Lord. That was Elijah's ministry. And when Malachi says that he will send his people, Elijah, they don't know, but we know that he's talking about John the Baptist. And we know that because of Matthew. Show me Matthew 11, I think. Yes. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John also has a ministry of preparation. He is preparing the Lord's people at that time for the day of the Lord, the coming judgment. And we read what his ministry looks like in Matthew 3. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, 
confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from the stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So some people show up to his outreach day, and this is what he has to say to them. We have, like, you know, Pastor Emily out handing out bulletins to greet you as you walk in. Imagine you show up one day with your family, and she sees you, and she says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> you like, hold your kids' hands tighter. Like, who warned you of the wrath to come? How many seats do you need? I know we read this. I'm like, my point, you know that my point is rest in God's mercy, and you're like, help me out here. Uh... Have you ever been on a hike and seen a sign that says something like sheer cliff? Nobody? Yeah. And um, imagine you're with me on a hike like that, and we come to a sign that says sheer cliff. And I'm like, man, whoever put that sign up is a jerk. I want to keep walking. You kind of get what I'm saying? Uh, Warnings, warnings are a way that God is merciful with us. Some of you already know that very well in your own life. Warnings are ways that God is merciful for us. God says, stop going that way through his word or through someone he's brought into our life. And it's a warning so that we might experience his mercy. Over and over again, throughout the entire Bible, God sends people to act as those who warn so that God's people might experience his mercy. God says, stop going that direction. There's only death that way. Turn back. And we respond to God's pattern of mercy with a pattern of repentance. We humble ourselves. We turn around. And we walk back into the arms of God who is merciful. If you're here this morning and you're seeing the signs, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you. Turn back. Experience God's mercy. Lastly, we can practice reconciliation. We read this in verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If I were to ask uh, people in society today, what is the most important relationship that our society, what, what, what relationship does our society think is the most important one? And most people would say, like a marriage, a husband and a wife, and, and they bear kids. And just to be clear, uh, you are not necessarily called to be married, nor are you less valuable or meaningful if you're not. But our culture today elevates marriage to the most important relationship in most sectors. In in that day, it was not so much marriage as it was the relationship between fathers and their children. It's where you derived your identity. Uh, You were who your father was. That's why in the Bible you have those lists of names. This guy was the son of this guy was the son of this guy. Because it's trying to explain to you who a person is. Because who their father was is who they were. What your father did is what you do. Like I know my dad's name, Joe. 
I know my grandfather's name, JT. Doesn't stand for anything. My grandpa's name was just JT. <laughs> Uh, don't know my great-grandfather's name, don't know what my grandfather did. I, I derive a very small sense of identity from people far back in my, what is that, like, genealogy. But at that time, it mattered a great deal. A lot of father and children, father and son language in the Bible. And what the Lord is saying through his prophet, what he's presuming is the deepest, most significant, most identity-forming bond in your society, that is between fathers and children, is broken. And he says, and, and through the work of my prophet, I will turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and the hearts of sons to their fathers. He says, I will reconcile them to each other. Our God, this is important right now too, is a God of reconciliation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let me show you uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Uh, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, because he's a God of reconciliation, uses the death of his own son, Jesus, to enable reconciliation between a rebellious world and a holy God. The deepest division ever in history is not between you and whoever you hate the most. It's between God and his enemies, whom he sent his son to die for. God is a God of reconciliation, and good children are like their fathers. Are we God's children? Are we God's children? It's been a bit of a year of discord, right? Pretty chill year. All your relationships stronger than they were 18 months ago? I've had fights about things this year that I never thought about before this year. (laughs) 2020, the year of discord. I pray that the year of 2021 is the year of reconciliation. We've been doing better, right? We're back together. Things are going well. The Lord has protected us and preserved us and been good to us. And then, bam, this last week, new mask mandate. Oh, is it that awkward for you that I brought it up? I get asked a lot in the last two days, text messages, emails, people at the stairs, what are we going to do? Poor Jared has to make the announcement. We don't, we don't know exactly. <laughs> to be fair, Jared handled it like a champ. People ask me, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I mean, this is a real, actual thing of discord, even here in our congregation, a thing that causes tension. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to trust God. 
We're going to consider others more highly than ourselves. We're going to express the bonds of unity found only in the Spirit by loving each other through self-sacrifice. And we're going to convey to the world that our God is a God of reconciliation by us ourselves practicing reconciliation. Does that sound good? Does that sound good? Let me just conclude by saying this. All of these are things that we do to wait well. They're true today. They'll be true in 10 years. They'll be true until the Lord returns. They are only true if God is faithful. They're only true if God is faithful. They're only true if God exists, if God created the world, if he sent his son Jesus to die on our behalf, and if Jesus is coming back. They're only true if God is faithful. And God is faithful. And God is worthy. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our obedience. That's been our tagline for the whole series, that he is worthy. Church, do you believe that he is worthy? Then say it. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for all the ways that you have provided for us throughout the entirety of our lives, but especially in this last year, in this last 18 months. We thank you that you continue to soften our hearts to each other, that you enable us to be reconciled to one another, that you've provided for us, uh, that you've given us things to truly hope and long for and reason to believe that we will have them. We thank you most supremely for the work that you completed through your son at the cross. We thank, we're thankful for his atoning death, a death that we deserved, but that he died in our place. We thank you that he was vindicated by being raised on the third day. Pray that you would continue to shape us and grow us, that we be people that glorifies you. We thank you for the book of Malachi and the many things that we can learn from your enduring word that you have sovereignly ensured we have access to. I pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.